19th century London saw two of the most sensational public scares in its long history when the enigmatic Spring-Heeled Jack stalked the alleyways of the capital city, and in 1888 when Jack the Ripper enacted his reign of the streets, bringing about an autumn of terror that has since become infamous. 100 years earlier, however, the streets were stalked by another threat, one that many consider a precursor to both Spring-Heeled Jack and Jack the Ripper, and one that remains, to this day, one of the strangest, most bizarre cases in the entire criminal history of London. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 9. I'm your host, Ben, as always, and today I have got the absolutely most strange episode that I think I have ever ever done for Dark Histories. I sort of knew that it was going to be a weird one going in, but I wasn't quite prepared. Let's just get going because it's quite a long one. And I said, but but, golly gosh, strap yourself in. This is bonkers. Let's go. This episode's called Rinrick Williams and the London Monster. Streets of London in the 1790s were a loud, chaotic and often confusing place to be. Hackney carriages clattered along cobbled streets alongside scores of horse-drawn carts carrying trade goods across the city from dawn till dusk. Hordes of people walked the streets at all hours, often young economic migrants who had moved to the city from more rural areas to take jobs as apprentices and domestic staff. Weaving from the larger highways, a rat's nest of alleyways and back streets spread across the city in a layout that in many places had not changed since its medieval inception. To add to the ceaseless din, criers shouted the time, advertised goods and tradesmen their services. Orange sellers and pie men, knife sharpeners and ironmongery, ditties were sung for them all, bellowed out into the crowds. Satirical cartoons lined printers' windows and gossip was constantly spun in the onlooking huddles. Men, all of which were supposed to be intelligent, courageous and determined, spent their time watching bare-knuckle boxing, challenging one another to duels betting on the number of rats a dog could rip apart in five minutes and, whilst the gin craze of the mid-century had largely ended, they drank a lot of alcohol. On the flip side, women were considered, by the male written and published writings of course, to be the polar opposite, all soft and weak, prone to nervous bouts of hysterical fits and keen on pastimes such as needlework, chastity and subservience. Interestingly, the same didn't apply to the thousands of prostitutes that men visited on the regular whose clients expected a little bit more from the term handiwork. Hundreds of pamphlets were published in the 18th century detailing the more famous ladies in a strange sort of directory that waxed poetic on such features as regular teeth and a very agreeable mouth. In the late 18th century, the wider political situation was equally as chaotic as the London streets. Revolution had sparked in France and was a hotly debated subject in Britain, watched with a keen eye by many, sharpening political and intellectual anxieties throughout the country. The British slave trade was making roaring business, transporting tens of thousands of people per year across the Atlantic, though thankfully not everyone back on British soil was particularly happy about it. There had been growing opposition to the practice, and the Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade had been formed in 1787, fronted by a group of Quakers and Protestants who had long held beliefs that the system that had delivered huge profits for the British Empire was morally reprehensible and a stain on the country's ambitions. Meanwhile, back in London, a huge degree of poverty hung over the lower classes. 
the west of the sea, had been intensively developed to house and entertain the wealthiest citizens, whilst paving and street lamps were thrown around, expanding the roads outwards, absorbing the poorer and more rural villages that surrounded the centre. The 1780s kicked off with the Gordon Riots, the most destructive riots in the city's history when a group of anti-Catholic Protestants began several days of protest against the Papists Act of 1778 that would allow Catholics to forgo the religious oath when joining the armed forces, and was originally intended to reduce discrimination against Catholics, but which some saw as an enabler for Catholics to legally plot treason. The protests quickly grew, however, and became a vehicle for other groups to air their grievances against the government, particularly those with economic complaints. During the violence, Newgate Prison was mobbed and largely destroyed, allowing a mass outbreak of prisoners, as well as attacks on several embassies throughout the city. The riots wound up with the army being called in after several days of widespread destruction. In the chaos, nearly 300 rioters were shot dead, another 200 were injured, and over 450 arrests were made. One of the important aspects that facilitated the riots was the wholly inadequate police force that existed in the capital. Over the previous century, the population of the capital had more than doubled to around a million occupants, with little change to the police force that had entirely failed to keep up with the rapid growth. By the end of the 18th century, the force in London was a collection of less than 2,000 constables and watchmen, many of them who were part-time, along with around 60 members of the Bow Street Runners, the professional force of the Bow Street Magistrates Corps in Westminster. Founded in 1749, the Runners were the city's first professional police force that had some success combating highway robbery within the city. The rest of the city's patrols and watchmen, however, were an inadequate assembly of tradesmen working short-term, part-time contracts as a duty to their individual parish. Most men would have to work a single shift every two weeks, where they would walk a beat armed with a lantern and a rattle for defence. Understandably, with the crime rate so high, especially in areas of street violence and highway robbery, many were not so keen to step up and would choose to farm out their contracts to those desperate enough for work to take the job. In many cases, this resulted in the beats being patrolled by little more than the workhouse's sickest, lamest and poorest, under-equipped and underqualified for any sort of physical confrontation, who were perfectly well open to take a bribe. This group was augmented in most parishes, but not all by a night watchman, who would play a similar role, walking a local beat and crying the time. But the wages were poor, and the jobs mostly taken up by the elderly, who had little desire for any confrontation with the criminal underworld. And the criminal underworld was having a great time. Outside of the usual pickpockets, highwaymen, thieves, smugglers and housebreakers, the late 18th century brought to London one of the strangest criminals the capital would ever see, stalking through the busy streets and creating a sensational public excitement that would not be paralleled for almost a hundred years. Sunday the 18th of May, 1788, was the end of another beautiful spring weekend in London. The year so far had been particularly dry and warm, and the spring had opened up a pleasant respite from the previous winter. In the streets, pie sellers sold from the back of their rickety wooden carts, whilst hawkers battled to be heard over one another, advertising the availability of their wares from mussels and crabs to plums, cherries and even wild-caught rabbits. In the city of London, people bustled to and fro along Fleet Street, shuttling between St Paul's Cathedral, officially completed at the start of the century, to the entertainment venues of Covent Garden. Maria Smith, the young wife of a doctor practising in nearby Stephen Street, northwest of Covent Garden, was making her way home when she was approached by a man she described as 
thin and vulgar with very ugly legs and feet. She also mentioned that he was wearing a cocked hat. Following her into Johnson's court, the man drew closer to Mrs Smith and began a bizarre torrent of vulgar conversation. Affronted by this foul language, Miss Smith continued her route, stepping up the pace until she arrived at the doorway to the house of an acquaintance. Just as she drew her hand up to knock on the door, she felt herself crashed into by the indecent stalker, who then stepped back, watching her as she stumbled into the house as the door swung open. Once inside, and the shock of the incident had begun to subside slightly, she realised that she was bleeding, and upon checking, she found her clothing to be slashed up. Her thighs, and on her chest in two places, had cut all the way through to the skin, leaving her with shallow cuts where, whatever weapon the stalker had been wielding, had torn right through her stay down to the skin. Fortunately, the wounds were not particularly deep, and they were easily patched up, but the attack had a lasting effect on Maria, who struggled with anxiety for several months after. The peculiar attack had seemingly been reasonably unique, and little fuss was made about it. Despite Maria Smith's injuries, the whole thing was kept under the radar, and nothing more was heard about it for several months, though in truth there had been several other attacks of a similar nature that spring. Maria's being one of five that would eventually be unearthed, all of which involved a strange man stalking women through the streets, insulting them and spewing profanities at them before slashing their clothing with some kind of scalpel or penknife. As spring turned to summer, however, what began as a small flurry of attacks slowly began to morph into something a little more sinister. In June, Mrs Franklin was walking home to her father's tavern in St James's Street just off Pall Mall and a little further west from the first attacks beyond Covent Garden when she was confronted by a thin, big-nosed little man who exploded in an abusive outburst before skulking off down the street. Just over six months later, in early 1789, Mrs Franklin's sister, Kitty Wheeler, was walking through the Ranelagh Pleasure Gardens in Chelsea where she had been attending a ball when a small man with a long nose and face and curly hair approached her and began to talk to her in what she described as indecent language. The man had so alarmed Miss Wheeler that she called out to a group of nearby young men, a move that saw the sinister man quickly pace off and disappear into the crowds. A few days later, when Kitty Wheeler was walking home with their sister through St James's Park, they were both approached by someone who they believed to be the same man. Once again, Kitty cried out for help, and Mr Parslow, the girl's father, who had been nearby, calmed the girls down calmed the girls down and agreed to follow them at a distance, promising to intervene if the same man tried to approach them again. They turned left into Bennett Street, just round the corner from their tavern, when the man, who had continued stalking the girls, once again tried an approach. Quick as a flash, Mr Parslow jumped out and tackled him, bringing him to the ground. Unfortunately, the crowds in the streets who had not been aware of the Bruin situation thought that the kerfuffle was little more than a good old-fashioned brawl, and Kitty Wheeler was forced to plead with her father to let their attacker go before a mob had descended upon him for starting a street fight. Clearly riding his luck, the same man apparently continued to stalk both the sisters several times over the following months. That spring had actually seen a resurgence of attacks that all seemed similar to the attacks of spring of 1788. A month before the attacks on Kitty Wheeler and her sister, Mrs Sarah Godfrey had been walking through Charlotte Street when a middle-sized man, about 30 years old, all dressed in black and wearing a cocked hat, began to follow her as she walked towards Bond Street. As before, the man was hardly discreet and would approach her several times, walking alongside her as the two made their way through Bond Street and onto Leicester Square and Piccadilly. 
Arriving at an upholsterer's shop, Mrs. Godfrey made to enter the store when the man suddenly broke his silence, shouting abuse at her. Choosing to ignore the outburst, Mrs. Godfrey continued on into the shop and was dismayed to find the man waiting for her after she came back out several minutes later. Walking at a slightly quicker pace, she began to make her way home, and all the way the man followed behind, scooting up beside her and then dropping back on several occasions. As she arrived in Charlotte Street, she made to push open her front door, when once more the man dashed up beside her, this time slashing at her thighs with a sharp instrument in his hand. As soon as he sunk the blade into her leg, he backed off casually, turned, and with a final backwards glance, walked off back down the street, leaving Mrs. Godfrey bleeding onto the ground as she lay grasping her leg. That autumn and winter, a further five attacks were recorded around West London, including one on a young lady named Mrs. Forster, who had been returning from Haymarket Theatre when a slender, thin man, around five foot six to five foot seven inches tall, with regular features and a long nose, approached her in an agitated state and offered to call her a coach, or, failing that, to see her home himself. Distrustful of his awkward manner, Mrs. Foster thanked the man, but turned down his offer and walked on alone. The situation not becoming any less suspicious when the man chose to follow her all the way to Dean Street anyway. The unnerving situation only grew worse when the man, tired of keeping his distance, ran up to her shouting a string of profanities and struck out at her hip, knocking her to the ground. Crying out to a small group of men nearby, Mrs. Forster clambered up to her feet to see the man run off down the street. Like the attacks before, she had suffered a slashing wound on her upper thigh and needed the help of the nearby men to limp her home, where she found she had lost a considerable amount of blood. That November saw a small flurry of attacks. Anne Frost was attacked as she entered her home on German Street. Like Mrs. Forster, she was struck on the hip, though the blade had failed to cut all the way through her clothing, saving her from any injuries. The only description that she was able to offer of the man was that he had a peculiar voice that she was sure she would be able to recognise if she was to hear it again. Shortly after the attack in German Street, Anne Morley was assaulted in Whitehall whilst walking home with another lady. This man, who had been about six foot tall, dressed in black, had pale and sallow skin and with a vicious ill look, struck her on the hip three times, barging between the two ladies, staring them in the face and then casually strolling away. Just days later, a similar attack took place near Charing Cross Station when a man struck Miss Eleanor Dodson on the hip, cutting her clothing through to the skin. In December, sisters Elizabeth and Francis Bourne were walking along Bridge Street in Westminster at around 7.15pm when a man ran up to them, shouted, Blast you! Is that you? in their faces and stalked them through the streets, casually insulting them from a slight distance. When the girls felt alarmed enough by this behaviour to run away, he pursued them, drew close and slashed at their dresses with a small blade before drawing to an abrupt halt and then casually walking off back in the direction that they had come. By the dawn of 1790, this long string of attacks had started to become a familiar occurrence. There were eight attacks in January alone. One attack towards the end of the month on an unarmed maidservant saw the young girl approached by a man who threw the usual abuse before running up behind her grabbing her and kicking her in the behind, shouting abuse at her the entire time. After she regained her composure, she noticed that her dress had been slashed several times and she guessed that the attacker had likely fastened some kind of bladed weapon to his knee. A similar attack took place days later where Mrs Charlotte Payne was walking to her employer's house in Brook Street 
and was approached by a man in a cocked hat that kicked her in the butt while shouting, Damn you, you bitch! I would enjoy a particular pleasure in murdering you and shedding your blood. If the threat had not been disturbing enough, Mrs Payne's condition was certain to strike fear into women throughout London when several papers reported that she had either outright died from her wounds or had fallen into a state of extreme danger. In the same month, Mrs Felton, Mrs Toussaint, Mrs Burney, Mrs Harlow and Mrs Allen were all attacked and had their clothes cut by a foul-mouthed attacker. The most well-documented attack in January, however, had come a week earlier when 21-year-old Anne Porter was attacked alongside her younger sister, 19-year-old Sarah Porter. The Porter sisters were the daughters of a well-known local man named Thomas Porter who owned a hotel, the Bunch of Grapes Tavern and a cold bath on St James's Street called Perros Bagno. The Bagno was a reasonably fashionable establishment surrounded by jewellers, taverns, booksellers and print sellers and Thomas had made a pretty good success out of his small property. Sunday the 19th of January was the anniversary of the Queen's birthday and guns were fired in the afternoon to mark the event along with a ball in the evening, and decorations were placed out adorning the streets. Anne and Sarah Porter had been celebrating at a ball in the local area, but by 11pm the evening's festivities had come to a premature end and the girls found themselves milling around in the street outside the ballroom with the prospect of either walking home with only their chaperone, Mrs Mule, or waiting by the roadside for another hour when their father would arrive to escort them home as they had already planned. Since there were so many people out in the streets due to the celebrations, the girls thought it no bother to walk home without their father and they set off back in the direction of St James's Street, which they reached about 15 minutes later. As the bathhouse was coming into view, they were approached by a tall, thin man, around six foot tall and with light brown hair, with a large nose and a pale complexion. As he got near Sarah, he stared her directly in the face, yelling, Oh ho, is that you? And then he struck her in the back of the head, sending her sprawling forwards, breaking into a run towards home, Sarah looked behind and called back to her sister to make haste, screaming, Can't you see that wretch behind? Both the porters and Mrs Mule reached their front door and began banging on it as hard as they could, when the man, who had casually followed them down the street, sprang forwards towards Sarah and struck her in the hip before backing up into the street where he stood, grinning at the women, until Thomas Porter opened the door and the women fell through into the hallway. Once behind the closed door, and they were able to regain their composure, Sarah noticed that she was bleeding, with blood pooling through her dress. Thomas immediately sent out two of his servants to chase down the attacker, but he had already disappeared. Dr Tompkins was called to dress the wound, which sliced six inches across the top of her thigh and was three inches deep in the centre. The doctor stopped the bleeding and dressed the wound, concluding only that it had been made with a sharp instrument. Several days later, Thomas, Sarah and Anne visited the Bow Street public office and lodged a formal complaint against the attacker and Sarah and Anne both provided a detailed description of his physical appearance. Much to his surprise, the magistrate on duty, Sir Sampson Wright, told Thomas that the attack, as strange as it was, had not been at all singular and in fact was only one of several that had happened on the Queen's birthday. Miss Toussaint had been returning from the same ball as the Porter sisters along with her mother, sister and two other women when they were also approached by a man who had followed them down the street and shouted obscenities at them. The man had struck Miss Toussaint and when she had arrived home she had found her dress slashed in several places, though she had been fortunate enough that the blade had not cut through to her skin. Mrs Harlow, Mrs Burney and Miss Felton 
had all been attacked in three separate events, all taking part within an hour of the porter's attacks, with all three having their dresses slashed by a man who had approached them suddenly, shouted lewd comments and then crashed into them in the street. Miss Felton had only been saved from injury by an apple that she had been keeping in her pocket that she had found carved apart upon her return home. By now, people had slowly begun piecing things together and had noticed that the long string of attacks appeared to have been linked. As winter gave way to spring and several further attacks took place, Dr Smith, the husband of Mrs Smith who had been attacked almost two years earlier, began collating reports of the attacks and visited the victims to document their experiences. Although the attacks seemed to unfold in a common series of events, he concluded that the differing descriptions of the attacker could only mean that it was not a single perpetrator. Smith wasn't the only man interested in the attacks, and when John Julius Angerstein, a Russian-born immigrant who had moved to London 40 years earlier, called for a reward to be collected for the capture of the attacker, he dubbed him a singular, inhuman monster, christening a nickname that would stick with the attacks forever. Published on the 15th of April, 1790, Angerstein's call to action was the first step onto what would prove to be a very slippery slope indeed. This is to give notice to the public in general that a subscription is opened at Lloyd's Coffee House over the Royal Exchange for paying a reward for apprehending that inhuman monster, whoever he may be, who has of late so frequently wounded several young women, the whole of which, whatever it may amount to, shall be paid to the person or persons who shall apprehend the said offender and prosecute him to conviction. Angerstein's outrage at the attacks on the poor innocent females of London could barely be contained. Like Dr Smith, Angerstein had been following the attacks across West London closely, and he too had taken it upon himself to visit as many of the victims as he could trace in order to document their attacks. Taking the letters in the newspapers to heart that some form of vigilante action had to be practised, he had called a meeting at Lloyd's Coffee House and collected donations for a reward for the capture of the attacker, donating five guineas himself. In total, his efforts had raised enough to offer £50 to anyone who could commit a suspect to prison and a further £50 upon their conviction. Along with the announcement, a description of the wanted man was printed in newspapers across the city. He appears to be about 30 years of age, of middle size, a little pockmarked, of a pale complexion, large nose, light brown hair tied in a queue, cut short and frizzled low at the sides. He's sometimes dressed in black and sometimes in a shabby blue coat, sometimes wears straw-coloured breeches with half boots laced up before, sometimes wears a cocked hat and at other times a round hat with a very high top and generally carries a wangy cane in his hand. Along with the piece in the newspapers, Angerstein also paid for posters to be printed and pasted up around the city with the bold print in capital letters the reward for £100 plastered across the top. Almost immediately, the news of the reward brought results and the magistrates were bombarded with a slew of citizen arrests for men who clearly had nothing to do with the attacks. In one case, a butcher was arrested for carrying a bloody knife and in another, a worker shopped his boss but not before he had beaten him severely with no evidence whatsoever. Whilst men were concerning themselves with displaying their gallantry, the size of the rewards sparked a great deal of panic amongst the women of the city, who circulated rumours of attacks and swapped stories that they had read in papers or heard about in the streets. Within weeks, the attacker had officially gained the moniker of the London monster, and letters were being written to editors suggesting that he was a phantom or an evil spirit with the ability to disappear and avoid detection. Meanwhile, 
documented attacks only increased in number. Most notably were the attacks on a pair of servant girls who had been attacked by a man who had asked them to sniff a small bunch of flowers, known as a nosegay, and then stabbed them in the face with a bladed weapon concealed amongst the bouquet. Outside of this new method of attack, the monster had seemingly run rampant, unleashing a reign of terror, attacking a further three servant girls, slashing their clothing, along with the attacks on Miss Susanna Thompson, Miss Harlow, Miss Jane Hurd and Miss Rebecca Law, all who gave varying descriptions of the monster, from a very tall man with a genteel appearance to a stout mid-sized man, and in one case he appeared to have a foreign appearance. In the attack on Rebecca Law, the attacker slashed at her arms with a claw-like weapon attached to its fist, scratching both of her arms with long gashes. In response, Angerstein issued a new poster with an appended message to domestic servants working in the city. All servants are recommended to take notice if any man has stayed at home without apparent cause within these few days during daylight. All washerwomen and servants should take notice of any blood on a man's handkerchief or linen as the wretch generally fetches blood when he strikes. All servants should examine if any man carries sharp weapons about him and if there is any blood thereon, particularly tucks. And maidservants are to be told that a tux is generally at the head of a stick, which comes out by a sudden jerk. All cutlers are desired to watch if any man answering the above description is desirous of having his weapon of attack very sharp. This request for a high level of suspicion was adhered to with aplomb, and the magistrate's office continued to fill with random men who had been hauled off the streets as suspects. In fact, so many people were being routinely captured as the monster that it was commented on in several letters to the newspapers that it had become equally, if not more dangerous, for a man to be out on the streets alone as it was for the women who were being stalked by the monster in the first place, due to the propensity of mob violence to break out at the slightest inclination that the monster was in the area. Criminals had even taken to accusing strangers of being the monster in very loud voices in order to create a scene and cover them whilst they went about their pickpocketing, or as an easy method to have an enemy beaten by a willing crowd. Even Angerstein himself realised that his reward had perhaps not had the most desirous consequences and he commented with much bluster and upset that somehow it had become unsafe for a man to walk the streets without the protection of a lady. Anti-monster vigilante associations were founded by groups of willing volunteers who patrolled the streets from sundown until 11pm, though they achieved little. Women, meanwhile, took matters into their own hands and a booming trade for copper underwear was launched by those hoping to protect their thighs from the monster's signature attacks. On the 4th of May, one man did seem to nearly catch a legitimate candidate for the monster when he was walking along a side road just off St James's Street. Dr Bush had been out visiting a patient that evening and was on his way home when he came across a man following a young woman on the opposite side of the road. Thinking the situation suspicious, he kept an eye on the man and sprung into action when the stalker lunged towards the lady while she stepped into a doorway. Dr Bush flew across the road, brandishing his cane, swinging it around his head and swiping towards the attacker who, fearing for the integrity of his skull, dashed off down the street, pocketing some sort of knife as he fled. The doctor ordered two nearby male servants to pursue the man who managed to catch up with him on the corner of Piccadilly. Lagging behind the captors, both the doctor and the women finally arrived on the scene where the doctor made to apprehend the attacker, when a second man apprehended the doctor instead and accused him of being the monster. Fortunately, the doctor was there and able to calm the growing mob who were baying for blood, but the furore had allowed the attacker to slink off unnoticed. Angry at the mob, 
The doctor accused the second man of being the monster's accomplice, but nothing could be proved and no arrest was made. It was the start of another busy month for the monster, with no fewer than 17 documented attacks being carried out on women throughout West London, with several more attacks loosely attributed that were almost definitely not monster-related. As well as attacks being wrongfully grouped with real attacks, the story propagated even more rapidly due to the fact that stories of an attack were now nearing the levels of fashion accessory and several spurious accounts were regaled by people looking to take advantage of the social spotlight that fell upon the victims and would-be captors of the monster. On the day following the attack on the young woman that had been foiled by Dr Bush, Elizabeth Davis was attacked on Chancery Lane by a man attempting to carry out the nosegay trick. When Elizabeth refused to be suckered in, the man grabbed her by the throat, pushed her against a wall and struck her in the chest and thigh, slashing her leg in the process. Elizabeth was a slight outlier in the fact that at 40 years old, she was considerably older than every other victim so far. That same night, a servant girl named Jane Reed was attacked entering a house on Glanville Street by a man who pulled a knife on her, though she was quick enough to escape inside before he could strike her with the blade. On Friday the 7th of May, another servant girl was attacked by a man wielding a weapon described as a five-pronged claw-like blade that was seemingly attached to the attacker's hand. Throughout all of these attacks, the magistrates still found themselves dealing purely with spurious and false arrests, both by citizens keen to take vigilante action and the officials themselves. On the same Friday night that the servant girl was attacked, a man was arrested by a pair of night watchmen and jailed until Monday morning. When Jane Reed was brought in to identify the suspect, she shrieked and fell faint, with her chaperones being forced to break out a vial of smelling salts to bring her round. For a short while, everyone saw it as a positive sign until she explained that she had been struck by fear because the man had looked a lot like the monster, but not because he actually was the monster. With the only evidence linking him to the attacks, being that he had been walking home drunk and alone in an area where two attacks had happened earlier that night, and the fact that he had owned a brown coat, he was set free shortly after the farcical identification. Meanwhile, in the parish of St Pancras, a Monster Patrol Association was set up following a meeting in the Percy Coffee House. It was a move widely credited by the public, with several letters to newspapers calling for the initiative to be emulated across the whole city, though it appears only Westminster followed through with actually doing anything after they set up their own monster patrols. One of the biggest problems for anyone trying to catch the monster, whether vigilante group, runner or night watchman, was that no one could really agree on who or what the monster was. Several rumours had steadily been growing that the monster was now anything from a supernatural demon to a rich troublemaker with a pension and the wallet for elaborate disguises. Angustine, however, remained fairly grounded in his search for the culprit, and he eventually resigned himself to the belief that, far more likely than a stilt-wearing master of disguise, the monster was likely not a single person. On the 7th of May, he published a new notice to the newspapers and printed posters confessing as much. Mr Angustine informs the public that the information he has received of the person who since Friday last has assaulted and wounded several women, there is a great reason to fear that more than one of those wretches infests the streets. Angustine also accepted that by organising such a large reward, he had inadvertently hindered rather than helped the situation for the officials, and likely he had made capture of the attackers much more difficult, as it had only added to the hype and hysteria that had, by now, saturated the streets of London as men joined the No Monster Club and wore pin badges on their lapels that assured passers-by they were not the monster. 
in theatres, plays were put on detailing the monster's movements that sold out every night, and the press filled their columns with stories of attacks and letters from the public casting out wild conjecture as to who the monster was. With monster mania reaching a fever pitch, some newspapers even began suggesting there was no such thing as the monster at all, and that all of the attacks had simply been failed attempts by pickpockets to slash the pockets of their victims, whilst others went as far as saying that the entire thing was nothing more than an invention, intended to entertain bored Londoners, though the victims were adamant that their trauma had been real. Anne Porter was especially vocal about the truth that the monster was real, even going so far as to say that she had seen him several times since her own attack, and finally, in June, she would have a sighting that would change the public narrative entirely. In the first week of June, Anne Porter had been at home at Perrault's Bagno on St James's Street when she was sure that she had seen her attacker looking in through the window. Calling for the servants, she sent them out into the street to chase the man down, but as usual, he managed to escape without a trace. A week later, on Sunday the 13th of June, whilst out walking in St James's Park with her mother, her two sisters and a friend, the local fishmonger, John Henry Coleman, she once again thought she saw the monster in a crowd of people. As she staggered and fell to the ground in a faint, she was just able to point in the direction of a man in a blue and brown coat and proclaim, there he is, the wretch. Coleman, no doubt hoping to prove his gallantry, struck off towards the man at a pace. Gaining some ground on the suspect, rather than apprehending him immediately, he decided to play it sensibly and follow him at a distance and observe the man's behaviour before he made any big moves. Perhaps much to his relief, this almost instantly paid off when he stumbled across a colleague in St James's Street who agreed to join him on his monster hunt. Tracking the man into Bolton Street, they watched carefully as he knocked on the door of a house and disappeared inside. Common's colleague decided the trail was cold and took his leave, but Common himself decided to hang around and see what would happen next. A few minutes later, the man reappeared on the doorstep and made off in the direction of Pall Mall. On the corner of the street, he knocked at the door of a china shop, had a spirited conversation with whoever answered the door, and then continued on his way. Coleman repeated the suspect's steps. He knocked on the door of the shop, and when the servant answered, he asked him who the man was that had just knocked, though the servant was no help and said that he had no idea of the man's identity. Not feeling disheartened, Coleman caught up with the suspect in Piccadilly as he was knocking on another door, and he decided that the time had come to approach the man and see what he had to say for himself. To Coleman's surprise, the man was quite cordial, considering that he'd just been ambushed on the street and asked who he was, and why he'd been knocking on the door of an empty house, a ruse that Coleman had come up with, presumably that he thought quite crafty. The man simply shrugged and said that he was quite sure that the house was not empty, and apologised and turned to walk back towards Oxford Street. Emboldened, Coleman continued following him, this time much closer, repeatedly getting up in his face and trying to provoke him into some sort of physical brawl. The suspect did his best to ignore this behaviour until he wound up on another doorstep, knocking before going inside. Coleman, by now incensed by the man's nonchalance, knocked on the same door shortly after, and when the owner answered, he demanded to know the suspect's name and address. It turned out the house had belonged to a man named Mr Smith, and he assured Coleman that his suspect had been an old school friend of his. Coleman explained that Anne Porter had suspected him of attacking her, and Mr Smith reluctantly scribbled down the name, Mr Williams, and the address, 52 German Street, on a scrap of paper, and handed it over to Coleman, who traded it with his own name and address. So far, 
The entire exchange had happened in a dark hallway inside Mr. Smith's house, with Coleman and Mr. Smith conducting this frankly bizarre exchange right next to the suspect, Mr. Williams, who was being roundly ignored. When Mr. Smith's servant arrived with some candles, however, and the hallway became better illuminated, the soft, warm light struck across the suspect's face, and Coleman realised with a start that he actually knew the man already. The man was Renwick Williams, a Welshman that Coleman had chatted with on several occasions in the nearby coffee houses and assembly rooms. Feeling instantly better about the whole situation, now that he knew that the supposed suspect was a decent sort of fellow, he invited Williams to join him back to the porters at the bagno so that Anne could give a negative identification and the whole thing could be happily swept under the rug as a silly case of mistaken identity. Williams agreed and the three men left to return to Anne Porter. Much to Coleman's surprise, however, the moment they stepped into the bathhouse, Anne became instantly alarmed and assured Coleman that he had collected the right man. Becoming increasingly concerned for his safety, Williams turned to Coleman and asked if he was suspected of being the London monster, which Coleman confirmed, sitting him down, ignoring his protests, and sent a servant to Bow Street in order to bring the police for an arrest. Whilst the men waited for the servant's return, Williams continued to protest his innocence, swearing that he'd been at work on the night of Anne Porter's attack and ensuring them all that he could supply a host of witnesses who could corroborate his alibi. It all fell on deaf ears, however, and when the servant arrived back at the bagno with the runner McManus in tow, Williams was promptly taken into custody and locked up in Clerkenwell's new prison to await an audience with the magistrate. The next day's stories in the newspapers lauded the arrest and the character of the monster was laid bare for all to see. Renwick Williams had been born in Wales in 1867 and was a 23-year-old artificial flower maker. Considered by those that knew him as a man of genteel appearance with friends of character and reputation, he was well-educated, played the violin and had moved to London in the 1780s after his father took a job in an apothecary and moved the family to the capital. Within five years of moving, his father had died and his brother had taken over the medicine business, whilst Renwick had apprenticed as a ballet dancer under Giovanni Andrea Battista Giolini, a wealthy Italian dancer and one of the most successful opera managers of the 18th century. After he was accused of stealing a watch and thrown out of the theatre, however, Williams had taken up artificial flower making when his sister got him a job at a factory in Dover Street. He had taken to flower making quite well but had been sacked only weeks before his arrest and was at one of his lowest points, boarding in a room that he shared with two other men above a somewhat less than respectable pub. Of all the facts of his life story, it was his current living arrangements that called forth most questions on his otherwise fairly respectable character, with some questioning his sexuality, an accusation that would have been pretty damning in the late 18th century. Williams was taken to the magistrate's office on the 14th of June, his carriage flanked by runners who, concerned that the mob outside the building were so enraged that they would have destroyed him could they have gotten to him, escorted him all the way. During the hearing, both Anne and Sarah Porter gave evidence and positively identified Renwick as their attacker. Furthermore, Anna remained convinced that he had been stalking her in the streets around St James's Street for over a year and a half before the attack on the Queen's birthday. Coleman gave his account of the pursuit and arrest and almost a dozen other attack victims gave their own evidence, with seven of them convinced that Williams was the monster, whilst the rest were either unsure or didn't think he was their attacker. When Williams gave his own testimony, he said that he had been at work until 1am on the night of the Queen's birthday, and he was confident he could gather witnesses who could confirm his story. 
After the hearing, his return to prison had to be delayed whilst the crowd outside dispersed, with the police still fearing for Williams' well-being at the hands of the mob. By the time they left, Williams was able to escape back to New Prison, relatively unscathed, with only a single vegetable being tossed at his face. The next day saw Williams back at the magistrate's court that was now filled with the rank and file of the day, including the Duke of Cumberland and Lord Beauchamp, two of the gentry that made up the enthusiastic audience. The day was filled with a parade of monster victims identifying Williams both positively and negatively, including several identifications both ways made by women who at the time of their attacks had been unable to give any sort of description of the culprit at all. As each victim was introduced, Williams continued to deny any knowledge of the attacks, including one attack which took place when he was said he was visiting Weymouth over 130 miles away. Williams' denials actually pushed this witness into admitting that she could not even remember the date of her attack at all. When she was asked how she was able to give a positive identification, she said that she had seen her attacker's features by the lights in the shop windows, but her attack had taken place on 8pm on a Sunday night when no shops would have been open at all. By now, the hearing was quickly falling into farce, but it was not enough to stop the feeling of the public crowds outside that grew each night and bayed for Williams's blood. As the police carriage left the court that night, members of the mod would jump onto the runners and hang off the doors, trying to smash their way inside. On the third day in front of the magistrates, Williams called his brother, Joshua, to give him a character witness, though he appeared to not grasp the true point of this role and proceeded to tell the court that although his brother had always been a good sort, he had been perhaps a little too partial to the temptations of the opposite sex. The fact that he was known to sleep around would have been less of a problem, but it was the fact that Joshua went on to tell the court that his brother would routinely swear and abuse women in the street who would turn down his advances. At the end of the hearing, Williams was committed to trial, without bail, on the antiquated charge that he had carried out an assault in the streets with an intent to tear, spoil, cut, burn or deface garments. This law had initially been introduced to protect weavers over 70 years earlier, but importantly, it was categorised as a felony, which meant that his punishment, if found guilty, would be either hanging or transportation, and therefore much worse than for any crime of actually attacking a woman. The result of the hearing was, for the most part, welcomed by the public and the press, with only a few exceptions that felt the charge was obviously ridiculous and intended only to increase the punishment. And they also highlighted the fact that there were so many different descriptions of the monster and barely any that actually fit Williams' appearance at court. Nine o'clock in the morning of Thursday the 8th of July saw the opening of the trial of Renwick Williams for the rather bizarre charge of assaulting Miss Anne Porter on the King's Highway and feloniously and maliciously intending to cut and destroy her clothes. The courtroom was more crowded than was ever known, and just like in the magistrate's hearing, a large mob had gathered outside that wanted nothing other than to lynch Williams on the spot. Williams had struggled to arrange a defence due to nobody actually wanting to take the case on thanks to the hype that surrounded it, but at the very last minute, the services of a solicitor, Mr Fletcher, and barrister, Mr Newman Knowles, was secured though it was such late notice that no proper defence had actually been prepared. Regardless, Williams pleaded not guilty and the proceedings were underway. The prosecution was led by Mr Arthur Leary Piggott, who declared dramatically to the courtroom that he had never seen a blacker case in all his days, unnatural to the honour of human nature. Anne Porter was the first witness to be called and she laid out the details of the attack that she had suffered on the night of the Queen's birthday 
along with the pursuit undertaken by Coleman after she had spotted Williams in St James's Park. Sarah Porter followed, and she explained that she had seen Williams several times before the attack, where he had stalked her through the streets and uttered the most horrid language. She gave her own account of the attack and swore positively that Williams was the man who had carried it out. In both cases, the cross-examination was a softball affair, with Williams's defence recognising that offending the porters would do nothing for the perception of them or their client. Coleman came next, giving a lengthy and drama-filled version of his pursuit and capture of the monster, followed by the police runner McManus, who gave testimony concerning Williams's room in the George Inn where he had recently been staying. During their search of the premises, they had found a suitcase belonging to Williams that contained nothing other than a white coat, a pair of boots and an old hat. In a small glint of light, McManus mentioned that he knew the owners of the inn and had always thought them to be respectable people running a respectable establishment. Williams opened his defence after a short recess with a pre-prepared speech that went down with the court like a ton of bricks, leading the audience jeering his lamenting of the hardships of his case. This was followed by a procession of over 17 character witnesses that Williams hoped could prove both the truth of his alibi along with painting him in a good light with the jury. One of his colleagues at the flower factory said that during his time working there, Williams had always worked hard and had had the very best character a man could have, always treating the female workers well. He was, she said, a very good-natured man and extremely kind and affable to the female sex. She was convinced that Williams had left work around 12.30am on the night of Anne's attack, which was then corroborated by several other witnesses from the factory, including the foreman. After eight hours, the judge summarised the case for the jury and then asked them for their verdict. Stepping back into the courtroom only minutes later, they almost immediately returned a unanimous verdict of guilty. The only positive for Williams was that owing to the somewhat unusual charge, the judge reserved the sentence to be passed down until the December assizes, allowing time for the case to be reviewed to ensure that the charge was really suitable to the crimes by 12 common law judges whose services were brought into play when questions of law or procedure arose during a trial. The postponement would have been of little comfort to Williams, who was escorted back to jail where he would have to wait for a further six months to see if his guilty verdict would stand and what his punishment would be. Following the trial of Renwick Williams, the public opinion was, for the most part, in agreement with the guilty verdict, and if anyone disagreed with the charge, then they kept quiet and largely accepted that it was for the best in order to ensure that the monster would be dealt a just punishment for his crimes, with some pretty gruesome calls being made public to have him flogged and transported at the earliest opportunity. One of the most damning elements for Williams in terms of the public opinion was simply the fact that since his arrest, the monster attacks had ceased more or less entirely, outside of a few cases which were kept pretty quiet, especially compared to the excitement an attack would generate before the arrest. Not everyone was against Williams, however, and a few newspaper editors expressed their doubts over the trial's verdict, generally focusing on the perceived strength of Williams's alibi. Angerstein, too, was vocal in expressing his opinion that he still believed the monster to be a gang of attackers working together rather than a single man. The sad truth of Renwick Williams was, however, that for the most part, public opinion was very much against him, and if his charge was anything to go by, the powers that be were keen to make an example of him. In November of 1890, however, one rather unusual support did arise for Williams's cause when the somewhat eccentric Irish poet, 
Theophilus Swift published a lengthy 213-page pamphlet titled The Monster at Large, or The Innocence of Renwick Williams Vindicated. Swift's argument lent not only on the strength of Williams's alibi, nor his character witness's testimony, or the inconsistencies in the descriptions given by the attack victims, but he went a step further by actually accusing the Porter sisters and Coleman as conspiring against Williams in order to collect the reward raised by Angerstein, highlighting the differences in Anne's descriptions and testimonies from when she was at Bow Street and the Old Bailey. Swift suggested that Anne Porter had been inspired to gain revenge upon Williams after he had approached her in the street and she had knocked him back, prompting Williams to have called her a whore. It was a fairly bold document, all told, and it did its utmost to rebalance the public view of Williams by offering the extreme opposite opinion of him, painting him as something of a saint whose only problem was being a little too interested in women. Anne was shown as little more than a desperate social climber and the banyo a brothel. Coleman was relegated to a few choice names such as frog-blooded coward and despicable buffoon. Perhaps a little surprisingly, the pamphlet didn't actually go down entirely badly and some newspapers found Swift's reasoning sound enough in a case that was, by now, entirely bonkers. If any editors found some of Swift's harder conspiratorial ideas a little tough to swallow, some at least accepted that the felony charge for tearing clothes was ridiculous at best. Fortunately for Williams, the 12 judges thought so too, and after reviewing the case, they forced a retrial. Upon hearing the news, Williams threw a party in his prison cell, allegedly attended by a crowd of people who enjoyed afternoon tea, dancing and live music, locked up behind the high walls. Williams's retrial was set to begin on the 13th of December 1790 at Hicks's Hall Session House in Clerkenwell, where he would be tried under the new charge of willfully and maliciously cutting people with intent to kill and murder, which, rather bizarrely, carried a much less severe sentence than his previous charge, as it was a simple misdemeanour rather than a felony. This time, Theophilus Swift acted for his defence and went all in with his view that Anne Porter and John Henry Coleman had conspired against Williams in order to collect the reward for the capture of the monster. Once again, the courtroom was filled with an excited audience who were, once again, treated to an opening statement by Williams himself, who asked the jurors, somewhat weakly, to disregard any prejudice they may have coming into the trial. Theophilus took to the drama of the courtroom like a duck to water and enthusiastically explained to the court the late circumstances in which he had felt implored to sweep in and save the day for Williams, who had once more been left without a defence. He then explained that he would be calling on all 17 alibi witnesses from the first trial and demanded that Coleman be removed from the courtroom whilst Anne and Sarah were at the bar in order to minimise their influence upon one another. In direct opposition to the first trial, Swift threw anything but softball questions at the sisters, implying heavily that the banyo was a brothel during their cross-examination, so much so that Anne had to be roused from a fit of swooning by a porter carrying smelling salts and a glass of water. Eventually, the prosecution objected on the grounds that Swift's questions were insulting and irrelevant to the case, a view which the judge agreed with, but Swift didn't seem to care. He was just having the time of his life. Everything seemed to be going quite well for Swift, who was doing a grand job in his own head of challenging the Porter sisters for changing their testimonies and descriptions. That was until Angerstein took the stand and explained to the court that Anne Porter had not actually received any of the reward, a fact that somewhat undermined Swift's entire conspiratorial case. He soldiered on, however, 
painting Williams as a sheep surrounded by wolves and called in a procession of character witnesses who once again backed up his alibi and gave him glowing testimonies for his personality. After a long day, the jury stepped out for 15 minutes in order to make their deliberations, returning at 11.30pm to hand the judge a second guilty verdict. The following day, Williams was found guilty for a further two attacks and sentenced to serve six years, two years for each attack, in Newgate Prison and ordered to pay £400 in payments to the victims. Much of the press was seemingly happy with this outcome, especially once they learned that Anne had not received any of the reward. Several commenters also suggested that Theophilus Swift's bombastic courtroom style was, perhaps, just a little bit over the top. Most were happy just to see closure to the saga that had been the London monster. For a while, visiting Williams in prison was a fairly fashionable pastime, and he continued to make artificial flowers in prison, which he would sell as souvenirs. But eventually, the epic of the London monster faded into obscurity. In 1791, Williams published his own pamphlet, titled An Appeal to the Public by Renwick Williams, containing observations and reflections on facts relative to his very extraordinary and melancholy case, which gave a personal look at the trials through the eyes of the prisoner, but it was something of a flop and the public showed little interest. Two years later, he wrote to the Home Secretary, begging King's mercy, but no reply ever returned. In a final, somewhat amusing twist, he was actually joined in prison by Theophilus Swift in 1795 for a year, after Swift was found guilty of libel in another one of his provocative pamphlets. A year later, Williams was released from prison on the 16th of December 1796, and a year after that, he married a young woman named Elizabeth Robbins. The two appeared to have a son named George Renwick Williams before the family disappeared altogether. Biographer Jan Bonderson, who wrote an exhaustive book on the case, believes that Renwick had changed his name, though he continued to live in London, where he carried on his work as an artificial flower maker. After two years of attacks and six years of prison, the saga of the London monster is one of the strangest cases in all of London history. And at the end of it all, we're still left with the crucial question. What the hell was going on throughout it all? Who was the real monster? And was there even a real monster at all? When we consider Renwick Williams' case, it seems clear he was not guilty of every single monster attack, but perhaps he did have a hand in some of the attacks. When the attacks are plotted on a map, they do all fall into quite a single, defined area of London, and coincidence or not, that happens to be around the flower factory that he worked at and his lodgings at the George Inn. It was true that he had a habit of pursuing women in the streets, and although many of the witnesses were unable to identify him positively, a handful did, and they swore blind that he was their attacker. It's also true that if the attacks did not stop altogether after his arrest, they decreased dramatically from an almost nightly occurrence to only one or two cases over the following several months. Was this because the culprit was in prison, or because the arrest of Williams had scared off any other would-be monster attackers? On the other hand, Williams's alibi was seemingly rock-solid, and he never really acted guilty, even during his arrest. So how about Theophilus Swift's idea that the whole thing was a conspiracy against Williams in order for Anne Porter to claim the reward? Although at the time the evidence given by Angustine at the trial seemed to floor this idea, the truth is a little more complicated. It may have been true that Anne never claimed the reward, but Coleman certainly did, and within a year of Williams's arrest, Anne Porter and Coleman were married, meaning that the couple absolutely profited together in the long run. 
Perhaps there was some truth to Swift's suggestion that it had all been a revenge story after Williams had tried to pick her up on the street. Or perhaps Williams was just seen as a soft mark, given that he was essentially a nobody with little recourse to legal aid. The monster's attacks themselves bear some thought too. Why was the attacker slashing women's clothes in the first place? It seems unlikely that every single attack was a failed attempt at murder, and the bizarre way the attacker approached women on the street whilst they are often on the doorstep of a house just seems odd. Even more so after the attacks, the monster often walked off casually as if nothing happened. A modern theory posits that the attacker was suffering from a condition known as peakerism, whereby the culprit was carrying out a sexually driven impulse to puncture the skin of a victim, and once the cut had been made and his desire satiated, the attacker would fall into a degree of shame or guilt, perhaps explaining why he would relent so quickly and walk away from the scene so casually, with all previous rage or delirium apparently abated. Perhaps also, he was just a chancer who enjoyed scaring his victims. But what about the theories that there was no monster at all, and the whole thing had been nothing more than a case of mass hysteria? The newspaper's reports that the attacks were little more than failed attempts at thieves slashing their victims' pockets seems a little bold, given that the victims were almost entirely young women, but it's almost definitely the case that many of the reports were more everyday cases of abuse attributed to the monster simply because the victims were women and fitted the monster's profile. Much like the later cases of Springhill Jack and Jack the Ripper, the London monster caused enough of an excitement throughout the public, saturating everyday life with sensational stories and rumours that blew the monster up into a larger-than-life character, that any sort of measured and reasonable response to the situation was all but impossible. Whatever the truth, the case of the London monster remains as one of the darkest, most bizarre and straight-up confusing cases in all of London's criminal history. It seems Williams likely paid the price of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, at least to some degree. But what was really going on is anyone's guess, and the answer will always remain as elusive as the monster himself. So that was the story of the London monster, which is utterly bizarre, and we got quite a bit to chat about after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college, it wasn't exactly the high point in our academic careers. I know for a fact that when I was at school, learning French was basically an excuse to spend an hour being an awful teenager. Now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be travelling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches you bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I've been learning Japanese for, for many, many years, so I'm quite familiar with language learning apps, but I'd never actually used Babbel before. Uh, so I gave it a go and I started learning French, which I, I learned at school for, for years, but I haven't literally, I, I, it's been like 20, well, uh, actually, I'm not even thinking when I left school, but it's been a long, long time since I last learned French. Uh, and I found it really interesting, actually, really intuitive way to learn. Um, it's essentially a sort of uh, repetition-based learning app, uh, which I've used before in the past, say when I was learning Japanese, I've learned, I've used all sorts of different methods when I was learning Japanese and I find that this sort of method that Babbel was going for obviously they have a quite unique like their own unique way of uh, uh, approaching language learning but this rough idea is that it gets you talking really quickly and it gets you using useful language really quickly 
which is something that actually I really missed when I learned Japanese because learning Japanese, I mostly used textbooks, which were great until I got to about the intermediate level and realized that my speaking and listening was very far behind. And with Babbel, you don't really get that because it gets you speaking almost straight away, which is really good. Uh, they have like short little lessons. Say I, I sort of used it to sort of brush up on my French, even though it, it put me in the beginner class straight away. But you get these little 15 minute lessons that make it kind of a perfect way to just pick up like a, a quick lesson a day just when you're on the go. If you're a bit busy sort of thing, it, you can still kind of squeeze it in. And, that's, and like I say, like the uh, the method they use is this sort of repetition based thing, which is uh, I've seen it. It's, it's, it's a tried and true. It's definitely a, a genuine method that, that works. Uh, they have over 14 different languages that you can choose, including Spanish, French, Italian and German. Plus, they have this really cool thing, uh, which actually is like a speech recognition thing. So it gets you to repeat back uh, words or phrases and it, it recognizes how well you do. Uh, yeah, they, I, I, I enjoyed using it. So I used it to sort of brush up on, I say brush up on my French, like I could speak any French. But uh, I used it to kind of like just go back over a language I was sort of somewhat familiar with from school and that and, and, and just sort of have a go at it and see what it was like. And I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good fun. There's a lot going for it. There's you could, there's a web-based app and a, a, a an app-based app that you can use on your phone or tablet or whatever. And, you know, there's like lessons, podcasts, games, videos, even live classes, which I, I didn't sign up for in their live classes, but I was quite impressed that they actually have like live classes um, that you can, you know, choose to sign up to. So, yeah, if you fancy a bit of that, you can sign up today. It comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. And right now, you get 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com, that's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, slash dark histories, all one word, babbel.com, slash dark histories, for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Cheers. The case of the London Monster, which is genuinely, I think, one of the strangest cases that I've covered in all of dark history's seven years so far like it's just weird so what do i think was going on i suppose first we have to look at like renwick williams right and i i i just don't think he was guilty at all of any attacks i think he had a propensity of maybe being slightly rude to women it seemed that like he would like try and pick women up in the street which was not an unusual thing to do at that period apparently but it seems he did you know, have, a, have a bit of a thing of like, you know, like maybe like swearing at women who basically turned him down. That is, I think, as far as his guilt lies. You know, it's not a great thing to be doing with your time, but it's far from like stabbing people. So I think that's all he's guilty of. And I think his when you look at his alibi, it's just far too strong. They had 17 witnesses that could corroborate his alibi that said that he was at work. And everyone also seemed to think that he was a really nice guy. I mean, the character witnesses is, is, is less, to me, important. But it's the alibi witnesses that all said that he was at work. To me, I just don't think it was him. So I think he was more or less just the wrong man, in the, like just the wrong guy in the wrong place. And I think he probably was well known to the porters as well. There's another bit, actually, that I didn't include in the story, but when he was uh, taken to Anne Porter's house, uh, the Banyo, when, when he was first captured by Coleman, he actually, as they were approaching the Banyo, he said like, oh, this is where the Porters live. So he knew who the Porters were, which 
kind of corroborates the idea that he'd been stalking them for like a year and a half. But that whole stalking thing that the the Porter sisters said, I wonder how deep that actually was. Like, was he stalking them or was did he think that he was just like trying to chat them up? Was he just trying to chat them up for like a year and a half and they just kept knocking him back? In which case, then we need to start looking at Theophilus Swift's idea that maybe it was a conspiracy and maybe they just wanted rid of him and they wanted the reward. Because Anne Porter, obviously she said that she turned down the reward, which she did. But Coleman didn't turn down the reward. He almost certainly got the reward. And Anne Porter lied about her relationship with Coleman as well during the, during the trial. She said that they were just friends or whatever. But they got married like very soon after the trial. So she definitely would have profited. In fact, they both would have profited. They both needed each other, as if you like. Like she needed Coleman to pursue and arrest him. And he needed her to sort of point him out as the uh, the perpetrator. So, you know, the conspiracy angle, I'm not sure I believe it, to be honest. But you can see where Theophilus Swift was coming from. Uh, like I say, I don't, I think it was a little bit too sort of tinfoil hat for me. I don't think they would have thought that deeply about it. But what about something in the middle, like somewhere in the middle where... Renwick Williams is perhaps a bit of a pest. Perhaps he sort of approaches women a, a little bit too strongly or is, is quite rude afterwards. So he's not this great angel that Theophilus Swift painted him as. But he's also not stabbing women, right? What if he's like that and he knew the porters and the porters kind of wanted to get rid of him and he had been bugging them and so they were like, mm, let's just finger him and get him out of the picture and, you know, as a side effect, they got some of the money as well. And and so it is slightly conspiratorial, but not planned to the degree that Theophilus Swift thinks so. And it is Renwick Williams being a bit of a monster in that he's being a bit of a pest. But he's not the London monster. I think it's somewhere along those lines. Either way, I think him serving six years prison for this is absurd. And, I, and the, you know, I, I think he was just a victim of wanting to be made a of the courts who wanted to make an example and sort of clear up this monster business once and for all. It, it gets a little muddy when you start plotting the attacks because they were all around his workplace, but he works in the centre of London. So the, the attacks were sort of plotted around lots of people's workplaces. It's, it's sort of confirmation bias there. The, the other problem you have, though, is that the attacks, the attacks did stop once he was arrested I think the attacker or attackers uh, were probably um, sort of scared off by by the, by the by the arrest. In which case, you know, it's a perfect time to sort of stop and also wipe your hands of it and probably get away with it because you know Williams is going to take the fall for your crime. So perhaps that's why they stopped. And in fact, they didn't entirely stop. So generally, I think he was probably uh, like largely innocent. Like. For the crime so I don't really think it was him so then we look at like who I think it was like I don't know I, I personally think that it was probably a group of attackers and I, I don't think like Angustine I don't think they were like in cahoots I don't think they were communicating I, I think it was just a bunch of different attacks that all happened at the same time because you look at the descriptions and they're just too differing like they're just all different they're constantly you know like the, the guy like grew and shrank like a matter of like half a foot in in a night um, and I don't think it was like 
you know, like some of the theories of the day that were suggesting that he was like walking around in stilts and dressing himself up and he was a really rich man that could afford lots of disguises. I don't, that's obviously not, I don't, I think that's ridiculous. So I just think it was just a, I, I, I genuinely think it was like a sort of a, like a case of hysteria where it just got blown out of proportion and this, the, 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 the excitement uh, in the newspapers that the, the, the newspapers were generating just sort of blew it all up out of proportion and these attacks were just being like left, right and centre just like uh, ascribed to this London monster that just didn't exist. That, that's pretty much my thoughts on it. Um, certainly don't think it was a phantom that uh, disappeared into the night after slashing women. I actually found the pickpocket suggestion quite credible. And I think that sort of falls into what I was just saying. I think some of them probably were failed pickpocket attempts where they tried to slash pockets and uh, like slash women instead. But I don't, but again, I think that they, they just accounted for some of the attacks. But then you're still left with this question, like why was the attacker doing this? To me, it's quite clear that it was like a sort of sexually driven thing because He's the way the the attacker was sort of described as like approaching the women and like shouting like lewd comments at them, and then attacking them and then walking off. It, it, to me, it just seemed like a, a very sexually driven thing. Um, so I think that probably was the case. Whether or not it was that peakerism, I have no idea. That's just one like sort of modern theory, but I think it was probably some sort of sexual deviance going on there. Um, but I mean, God knows what, right? It's just crazy story. But uh, yeah, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. If you agree or disagree with any of my sort of thoughts and feelings on the case, do feel free to get in touch. You can email me, contact at darkhistories.com or any of the social media gubbins that the podcast's on, uh, you know, like Instagram and all that jazz. Uh, all the links for that is in the show notes, uh, as well as the links to the website, which is darkhistories.com. And really, that's the hub. You can go there, say, check the show notes or go there and you'll find all the ways that you can support the show, buy merch, buy the books, sign up to the community, all that kind of fun stuff. But yeah, anyway, thanks very much for listening, as always. It's been a pleasure. This episode came out a little bit late, so next episode is actually going to come out next Sunday, so it's only a week to wait between the two episodes. So until then, take care. I hope you have a great week. I'll speak to you real soon. Cheers. Sleep tight. <laughs>